This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. It's time for the June episode. I'm editor Ezzy Pearson, and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later, we'll be telling you how to observe the partial eclipse that will be visible all across the UK on June the 10th. But for now, we're going to be taking a wider look at the universe. This month marks the 20th anniversary of the launch of the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, better known as WMAP. This was an incredible mission that aimed to map the entire night sky for something called the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. Yes, indeed. Um, And I suppose it's worth beginning the podcast by explaining exactly what that is. It's it's ultimately heat or radiation left over from the the Big Bang, really, isn't it? It's sort of the uh, the remnants of the... uh, of the beginning of the universe, which is quite exciting to to comprehend. (laughs) It is. It's the first thing which it is possible to see in the universe. Because what happened originally when the universe first formed, there was the Big Bang, and this made everything in the universe incredibly, incredibly hot. In fact, it was so hot that all of the electrons and protons that normally would have bound together to form a hydrogen atom were so fast flying away from each other that they couldn't connect to each other. They kept flying apart. And this continued for about 370,000 years. Um, And at that point, the universe was constantly expanding after the Big Bang. And 370,000 years after the Big Bang, things had cooled down. It was about 300 degrees Celsius. um, And it was at that temperature that the atoms could finally bond together again. And what that means is when you have protons and electrons flying around all over the place by themselves, when they're free electrons, they're called, they have a tendency to very, very quickly absorb any photon that hits it. So any particle, any bit of light that hits one of these atoms, it immediately gets absorbed. And that meant that light could only travel, you know, fractions of a nanometer across the across space. But when those atoms combined, uh, a time that's called recombination, um, light could suddenly travel distances again. And and that's what the CMB is. That's what we're seeing. It's that very, very first wave of light that came out when all of the atoms combined together. Uh, However, over time, uh, the universe has been expanding. And whilst that was originally, you know, very hot, visible light, that light's been stretched by something called redshift and eked out and, and, and stretched out until it's become very long wavelength type of electromagnetic radiation 
that we can call microwaves. Yes, and isn't it the case also that um, what WMAP's actually measuring is there are essentially these sort of really, really tiny, tiny fluctuations in sort of the uh, in the density and the, and the dimness of of this um, radiation. So, um, you know, obviously it's incredibly difficult to uh, to observe, but it's, it's those <laughs> tiny, tiny fluctuations that sort of give us a, a view of what that what that early universe was like. So currently, the the background temperature has is about two point seven Kelvin. So over the last, you know, 13 billion years, things have cooled down a lot. And so now it's only about 2.7 Kelvin. Uh, Kelvin being the temperature in degrees Celsius above absolute zero, which is the coldest that anything can be. So 2.7 Kelvin is very, very cold. (laughs) It's about minus 270 degrees Celsius. Um, and, And that's what the kind of current temperature of the CMB is. But the fluctuations that scientists with WMAP are looking for are only about 0.003 Kelvin. So that's less than 0.1 of a percent changes in fluctuations <laughs> that WMAP was trying to find. It's absolutely it's incredible. Just astonishing. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? I mean, it's it's ultimately looking at how the universe went from this sort of hot I mean, I think I've heard a few people describe it as the sort of hot primordial soup, um, mm. where where everything's quite you know uh, homogenous and everything's just flying around and like lights being scattered and uh, to eventually getting to you know the seeds of the first stars and galaxies to the universe as as we know it today. Um, I, th- I think it's interesting though going back to the um, story of how the cosmic mi- microwave background was detected because. Like you know, some of the some of the greatest scientific discoveries, it was sort of um, scientists sort of going, "Oh, that's weird. <laughs> What's this?" <laughs> um, it was because it, was, it wasn't just. Yeah. It's was quite quite recently, really, wasn't it? Like it was in, like, in the mid sixties, nineteen sixty four. These um, two American radio astronomers who just had this strange um, reading on their um, it was like static noise on their on their equipment, and they initially thought it might have been like. Um, uh, pigeon droppings on their antenna. <laughs> yes, there was there was a couple of pigeons that were living inside the antenna, um, and and even once they had um, removed the pigeons, shall we say politely, um, <laughs> and and cleaned everything out, um, they were still getting this kind of like weird background hiss, um, and they were wondering what on earth it could be. Um, and it turned out that actually there was quite a lot of uh, people who'd done sort of theoretical work, sort of saying like, oh, there might be this kind of background radiation to the universe left over from the Big Bang. Um, that sort of idea had been around since the 1950s. It just turned out that the two astronomers, so it was Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, who actually, you know, observed the CMB, the, the guys with the pigeons, um, they hadn't read these papers. They didn't know. Uh, they just published this sort of thing saying like, we've got this weird background hiss. Does anybody know what it is? Um, and then all of the kind of like theoretical astronomers just went, well, there goes my Nobel Prize. <laughs> 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 it had been discovered by these people who weren't even looking. Because they they reached out to um, astrophysicists at, at Princeton University, which was, I think was quite quite close to where they were operating. Um, and I really, I really love that. Um, you know, because they were radio astronomers, you know, they had these like hisses in their antenna. You know, they, they could have called all matter of people, but it's like, no, let, let's let's call the astrophysicists at Princeton and see what they think. 
Um, I, wa- I wonder what those um, astronomers at Princeton, like, did, you know, did they immediately sort of think, oh, these guys could be onto something here? Or do we know whether mm-hmm. or not the astronomers at Princeton were initially sort of like, well, it could be anything, like, why are you asking us kind of thing? Yeah. Well, as I said, there were some people who had kind of, uh, who, who had to sort of theorize that this is what this might be. And pretty quickly after to looking at, at the data and, and sort of looking at the information that they had, it was quite obvious. Like they, they soon realize that this is 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 what it is. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, Wilson and uh, Penzias then subsequently in 1978 won the uh, Nobel Prize for Physics for, um, for the mm-hmm. discovery, which is quite cool, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it tends to be that when it comes to, to Nobel Prizes, is especially on something like this, when it was predicted by somebody else, but it was first observed by these people, uh, the Nobel Prize tends to go to the people who actually like made the observations and could like prove it uh, yeah which i believe causes some consternation sometimes but in this case <laughs> yeah i mean not to sort of to sort of drag up like a different story but th- that's what it makes you think of uh, uh jocelyn burnell you know discovering the mm-hmm. first pulsar but she was the one who observed it but she didn't get the nobel prize yeah back to the map i mean it uh, wasn't the first um mission to to study the cosmic microwave background was it because the first the first i think first as far as i know the first sort of mission to study it was uh cobe the cosmic cosmic background explorer um mm-hmm. which uh, operated between 1989 and 1993 uh, and it produced produced the first full sky map of the cmb and revealed these sort of fluctuations in temperature as we said that revealed the structure of the universe three hundred eighty thousand years after the big bang um but then sort of i suppose what, what wmap was doing was um refining um what what cube had had sort of discovered before it <sighs> spring is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments there's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices free samples free shipping and our 100 satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when it comes to the cosmic microwave background, you really want to have like the global image. You want to have the full picture of what it's like in every single direction. Um, and that's very hard to do from the ground because your telescope can look up. Um, it can cover, like, if it can move around, it might be able to cover quite a large area of sky, but it can't cover the whole sky. Like, no telescope can because Earth gets in the way. Um, so that was why uh, both Kobe and WMAP were space-based. Um, so these were, were the first full sky maps. And, and that gives you kind of like the, the entire view of what these, these fluctuations, uh, they're called anisotropies, um, hence the, the anisotropies in the name of WMAP. Um, and these are the kind of tiny fluctuations in, in the, the background that are basically the, the artifacts, the remnants of fluctuations in where matter was and, and the quantum state of the universe <laughs> right the way back at the beginning um, when that universe when that universe cooled down and, and light could emit so it it basically it, it gives us our view of what the universe looked like when it was only three hundred and seventy thousand years old 
Um, and knowing that uh, cosmologists and people who are trying to work out how the universe grew to the way it is today can really get to grips and understand how we've come on that journey. Do those fluctuations in any way relate to the observable matter in the universe as we see it today? Like, did, did those dense fluctuations relate to, like, were they, were they the seeds of, of what then became galaxies? Does it, is, is it a pattern that, that fits the, uh, the universe as it currently exists? Well, it's, it's quite a complicated uh, relationship of, of how um, the universe in that current state how how it then transferred to being galaxies and, and the structure that we see today. Um, but it does carry a lot of information. Um, so the people who who work out how the the cosmologists who work out how the the universe grows, they know um, from various mathematical models and formulas that they've worked out, they know how they think, given a certain start, what the universe would grow into today. And that's exactly what they did with WMAP. They they had basically the the list of ingredients. Like so so you're trying to cook a universe. They had the <laughs> list of ingredients um for the recipe. They had the steps that they needed to take to 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 bake a universe, but what they didn't have was how much there was of each of those various ingredients or how long they needed to bake. Um, and so that was kind of what they were trying to work out. Um, but now that they had this picture of what the universe looked like back right at the beginning, they could kind of run that situation through their their, their plan of how they think that you make a universe um, and just keep trying it over again with changing, you know, like how old the universe is, what it's made up of, and keep tweaking those numbers until they found something that looked like today's universe. So going from one to the other is a fairly complicated procedure. But by doing that in a computer, that was how they managed to work out kind of some of the the factors of our universe. So uh, initially, they were were essentially like... um... Like they were doing the uh, technical challenge of the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> you got the ingredients yeah. and really big instructions. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Um, and and some of them ended up like they got it right and it looked like a beautiful flan. Um, and on others, it was a great big mess. So, yeah. <laughs> Just like, Just like the Great British Bake Off. However, they they ran, you know, did did thousands and thousands of different simulations until they like precisely pinpointed exactly like all of these various different numbers. Um, Amazing. The set of numbers is something called the the cosmological parameters, um, and this is kind of like our description of what kind of universe we live in, um, and in order to to kind of get their their simulated universe to look like a uh, actual universe you needed to have these like really really precisely spot on um it's actually like surprising how spot on you needed to be um which is why these values are now believed to be so accurate incredible um you you had sort of touched on the um the uh, orbit of uh, WMAP. So I thought it was maybe worth um, actually going through the sort of technical aspects of of, of the actual spacecraft mm-hmm. and, and the space telescope and, and what it actually did. Um, 
so yeah, so it uh, launched on the 30th of June 2001, as we said. Um, and over nine, nine years, um, it orbited in the uh, Lagrangian point, uh, L2, uh, around the sun. So and, and every, every six months, uh, it would do an orbit and it would make a, a, a new map of the entire sky, allowing the astronomers back on Earth to refine their map of the sky and, and their data. Um, I always think those um, Lagrangian points sort of need explaining. So Lagrange point, uh, the, the, the Lagrange points are these um, positions in space um, within the Earth-Sun system. And uh, L2 is, a, is, a, is I guess, a position where there's a stable orbit. So if you wanted to put a, a space tele- telescope in L2, the gravitational pull between both the Sun and Earth is such that it can remain pretty much um, the, the spacecraft in that or, orbital point can remain pretty much unperturbed because it's it's a, it's a nice sort of nice sort of balance. Um, just just um, point of interest. That's where uh, JWST is going to be the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, so it's it's the same sort of orbital uh, uh, path or or point. Um, and um, yeah, I, 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 again, another really um, interesting aspect of all these sort of. Um, uh, space telescope missions like the Planck and things like that, um, and um, WMAP is that when you get down to it, they are ultimately really, really cool telescopes. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, uh, WMAP was effectively two two back to back reflecting telescopes. Um, they had one point four by one point six meter primary reflectors and zero point nine by one meter secondary reflectors. Um, so the really just like sort of like reflecting telescopes that would observe radiation. Uh, and they had re- radiometers to amplify and convert the signals that it detected into this sort of like quantifiable data that could then be sent back to um, scientists on Earth, which was another advantage uh, of, the, of the L2 point. Because um, there, there are, I think there are a few reasons that, that, that you put it there. Um, one was, yeah, to, to be able to send this, the data back to Earth. But the other one is so that basically the Sun and Earth are all... Or well, can can be behind the the um, mm-hmm. the spacecraft. So sort of uh, the sort of microwave emissions of Earth and the Sun aren't um, you know getting in the way of uh, of its data. So you can get nice clean data. But also at the same time, you're sort of relatively close enough to the Sun that your your solar panels can can get um, power. So WMAP had solar panels and also had a nice solar shield to keep the to keep the uh, the satellite um, operating, um, you know, at a sort of nice uh, thermal equilibrium. <laughs> so, w- one of the, the the cool things about the L two point is that it's kind of Earth pulls you along a bit whilst you're in that orbit, so you your spacecraft keeps pace with the Earth. So, as you're going around the sun, even though you're much further out, I think it's was it one point five million kilometers yeah. from Earth. I think L2 is. It is, yeah. Um, you're always you're always in the same part of the orbit as it. You're not like lagging behind or getting ahead, um, which makes it a lot easier if you're trying to communicate with the spacecraft and it hasn't fallen behind you and is, you know, half a million miles <laughs> on the other side <laughs> of the, the solar system. It was a really cool mission, WMAP, when you think about it. I mean, loads of the, the sort of the... The facts that we now know about the observable universe, you know, the age of the universe uh, being 13.8 billion years um, and this notion of observable matter only makes up about 5% of the, of the universe. The rest is being dark matter and dark energy, uh, dark mm-hmm. energy causing the 
um, acceleration of the expansion of the universe, um, dark matter being this invisible, undetectable, un unobservable force that has, or matter that has um, gravitational pull. I mean, that that's mm. already sort of come about as a result of the w, WMAP mission, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so earlier I mentioned something called the cosmological parameters, um, and that's that's what those numbers mean in ways that, you know, us normal people who don't speak, you know, 15 pages of calculations, um, <laughs> that's, that's what these numbers mean. Um, so, yes, it found out that... The, we, they knew previously that the universe was made up of uh, something called baryonic matter, which is basically like normal matter. Like it's you, me, the planets, the sofa I'm currently sitting on. That's all made of baryonic matter. Um, there was That makes up about 5% of the universe. 25% was dark matter, which is the stuff that keeps galaxies together and stops them flying apart. Um, and then 70% was this mysterious dark energy, which is something that appears to be driving the universe apart. Um, and that was another thing that, that WMAP kind of pinned down, uh, is the fact that the universe is expanding. Um, but not just expanding, it's accelerating. Uh, prior to WMAP, that was something that a lot of people suspected, but nobody knew for sure. Like There was a lot of conflict about the fact that that the universe was was accelerating its expansion because i mean think about it it's like the further apart something gets like you think over time it would eventually start slowing down as it kind of runs out of runs out of energy um but but that didn't happen um instead it seems to all be shooting apart from each other suddenly um so people came up with this idea of dark energy to explain that um and it seems to make up about 70% of the universe I always find that a little bit distressing when you realise that 95% of the universe is made up of stuff. <laughs> it's like we don't really know what it is. It's just there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incredible um, you think that, you know, like the last podcast we did, we were talking about the uh, great debate of, of 1920, where two astronomers, uh, Shapley and Curtis, were discussing whether or not, you know, like, the Milky Way is the universe, or whether whether other whether other galaxies exist. You know the scale of the universe, um, and then what is it like seventy years later? Um, we're sending mm -hmm. a space telescope to measure the um, you know measure the background radiation left from the Big Bang and and discovering you know what the what the early universe was like in its in its infancy in within this, this matter mm. of like seventy years. It's absolutely incredible, yeah, isn't it? It is. Do you think that? Um, a mission like uh, WMAP was sort of uh, the point at which co cosmology ceased to be largely theoretical and became more of a sort of deducible science that you could prove with, with data and facts and, and mathematics? Oh, absolutely. You know, before then, they had the COBE probe, um, which managed to, to kind of measure a couple of these numbers. Um, but for a lot of these kind of parameters and, and the various like aspects of our, our universe that, that cosmologists wanted, they didn't really have a proper way of measuring half of them. And the ones that they did, they could only sort of vaguely guess at. Um, whereas when WMAP came along, they could suddenly like get really, really precise measurements about what they think these numbers are. 
um, it's estimated that it was about a, a 70,000 times improvement on these measurements. Um, given that, you know, some of them they couldn't even measure beforehand. It's like it was an incre- it was a jump forward. Um, I remember I was talking to the the PI of of WMAP, the primary investigator of WMAP, um, and he was saying the first time that he showed a cosmologist kind of like the list of numbers that they'd come up with and like the precision that they had these list of numbers, it was just like their jaws dropped because they couldn't, even though they knew that it was going to be really good, it was sort of like suddenly after all of these years <laughs> with very little data having these precise, precise measurements, it was just an absolute game changer for them. Um, it, it transferred, you know, something that was kind of like a wishy-washy area of science into like a hardcore precision field. So cool. And it sort of, you know, all started with, you know, two radio astronomers in the 1960s going, what is that hissing? <laughs> <laughs> it's really annoying. What is it? <laughs> it? It makes you wonder, you know, what what might eventually enable someone to to actually discover what dark matter is or what dark energy is. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll be something like that. And then, you know, within our lifetime, there'll be space telescopes mm. designed to actually observe dark matter being launched and, and actually observing it. Yeah, it is. It's one of those reasons why it's, it's so important to do like different areas of science and, 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 and look at different things because you never know where the next breakthrough is going to come from um it's like it could it could come from somebody going hmm i wonder what that is <laughs> um yeah indeed um i found a really nice um quote um by uh, adam reese the uh, uh astrophysicist who in um 2011 was the winner of the nobel prize in physics for his work showing that uh, the universe's expansion is accelerating and he was talking about wmap uh, mission and he said um, the last word from WMAP marks the end of the beginning in our quest to understand the universe. WMAP has brought precision to cosmology, and the universe will never be the same. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. It breaks my mind a bit. I know, but it, it that there is just something very gratifying about being able to kind of work out where we are in the world, and that's one of the reasons why people do astronomy and cosmology and all of these sciences is that kind of need to know where we came from um in this case in a much larger sense <laughs> yeah, than a lot of other sciences it's like where did everything come from <laughs> yeah, yeah. not you know oh yeah how did humans evolve how, how was the how was the earth formed just how did everything come to coming to existence <laughs> and perhaps ultimately how, how will everything end you know Oh, how things are going to end, there's a completely different issue. <laughs> but if our listeners do want to find out more about the work that WMAP did and what it showed us about our universe, then they can pick up the June issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we have a feature telling you all about it. And now it's time for this month's Stargazing Tip. Thursday the 10th of June will see the occurrence of an annular solar eclipse, where the moon will pass in front of the sun, but won't block it completely leaving a so-called ring of fire visible to those in the far northern hemisphere, in territories like Canada, Greenland and Siberia. Those of us viewing in the UK, Northern Europe, the United States and other regions, however, will be treated instead to a partial solar eclipse, where the moon only covers part of the sun. 
This month, it will be worth your while catching a glimpse of the event if you can. From the UK, the eclipse occurs late morning and favours those living in the northwest of the country, with viewers in the Shetland Islands getting to see more of the sun's diameter obscured by the moon than in other UK regions, as much as 39%. Viewers in London will see an obscuration of 20%, in Cardiff, 22%, in Belfast, 30%, and in Edinburgh, 31%. From the UK, the eclipse will begin shortly after 10am BST, and provided the skies are clear, should produce a spectacular display. However, because the sun won't be completely blocked out by the moon, caution is required when viewing a partial solar eclipse, as looking directly at the sun with the naked eye can seriously damage your eyesight. If you do want to view the partial eclipse, there are numerous ways you can do so safely, including wearing a pair of certified eclipse glasses, by projecting an image of the sun onto a piece of white card, or by using specially designed solar telescopes and solar binoculars. For more information on the eclipse and how to view it safely, visit www.skyatnightmagazine.com or pick up or download the June 2021 issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about WMAP in the June issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a look at what the UK Parliament is doing to tackle light pollution, learn how to image the planets of the solar system, and find out how you can re-edit images taken by professional telescopes from the comfort of your own home. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.